Father, we thank you for this time of year. We thank you that we are sliding into Thanksgiving and then Christmas. And my prayer, Lord, is that we don't make it too busy, but we enjoy every moment that we are doing something. And pray that you would fill us full of joy, for we know the reason of the season that is coming and the thankfulness that we all have here. Lord, may it just exude from us to all who come in contact with us. We also pray that as we go into this season, give us the opportunity to share our faith with others, to bring them to you, to be able to intelligently and in a lucid fashion communicate the gospel and what it is to be a disciple. And I pray, Lord, that those who are reluctant to be a disciple, to do what is right, all of us, including myself, Lord, that we would deny ourselves, as we just sang, empty us so that we might be filled with you and do your will. And this morning, as we get into the book of Exodus, we pray that you would teach us for this purpose. Show us by example the things that Moses did, what we can avoid, and what we can emulate. And we'll do this according to your will, in your way, in Jesus' name. Amen. So we see that God chose Moses. Moses had become content and complacent and satisfied and unworried. He was in the desert for 40 years. He decided to give Moses a second chance. And because of his upbringing, he was given this commission to go and rescue his people. Now, in verse 10 of chapter 3, it says, So now go, I am sending you to Pharaoh, and bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And as you recall, he had some objections there as far as being that individual that God would call. Excuse me a minute here. My papers are out of order. And Jesus said, the seven I am statements and God declared who he was from the burning bush. And from that burning bush, he gave Moses the name I am. He said, I am that I am. And that's who you are supposed to tell the people, the nation of Israel, who sent you. I am that I am. And then we looked at the I am statements of Jesus in the book of John. We went through those, and Jesus was, in fact, calling himself God. But then I told you that Moses himself had these seven I am statements, or excuse me, five I am statements. He said who he was, or who he was inadequately in his mind. He said, I am insignificant. He said, I am ignorant. He said, I am anxious and I am unskilled and I am reluctant. Now, he didn't say those words specifically, but when God called him to go to the nation of Egypt and grab his people, Israel, and bring them out to worship, he found every excuse in the world why he could not. He didn't want to do it, and his ultimate act was an act of disobedience. And so when he said, I am insignificant... We know in verse 12, it reads here that God said, I will be with you and this will be a sign to you that I, it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. 
But he also said in verse 13, Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you and they ask me, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? He's saying, I'm ignorant. I don't know who you are. And I've given you these first three points already. I'm just simply reviewing them. He said, I possess no knowledge of you. And yet God revealed himself specifically. He said, this is my name. This is who you are to go to, to the elders and then to the king of Egypt. And this is what you are to say and what to do and this is the outcome of what is going to take place for your efforts and then he gave him some further instruction in verse 15 say to the israelites the lord the god of your fathers the god of abraham the god of isaac the god of jacob has sent me to you go assemble the elders of israel and say to them the lord your god the god of your fathers the god of abraham isaac and jacob appeared to me and said i have watched over you and have seen you what has been done to you in egypt and i have promised to bring you up out of your misery in Egypt and into the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. And then he said that the elders would also listen to him in verse 18. Then thirdly, he said, well, you know, I'm fearful or I'm worried. At least that's what he communicated. Moses answered in verse 4 here, what if they do not believe me or listen to me and say, the Lord did not appear to you? Well, he's saying that I'm fearful. I didn't think he could stand up and convince his fellow Jews and the Egyptians. He had a fear of failure. He had a fear of the unknown. He had a fear of expectation, a fear of conflict. And, of course, Psalm 27, verse 1 says, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? And, again, God laid out this plan. He gave him the staff in which to perform the miracles. He gave him his name. He said, this is my name. Go and tell them I am the one who has sent you. And then ultimately he says, I will be with you so you don't need to worry. Excuse me, this is chapter 4 we're getting into here. Then the Lord said to him, what is in your hand? A staff, he replied. Excuse me, I I need to stop here for a moment. You guys have your Bibles. Is this in fact chapter 4, verse 2? It is, okay. It's the guy who put this together. I don't know about him. Then the Lord said to him, what is that in your hand? A staff, he replied. The Lord said, throw it on the ground. Moses threw it on the ground and it became a snake and he ran from it. Then the Lord said to him, reach out your hand and take it by the tail. So Moses reached out and took hold of the snake and it turned back into the staff in his hand or into the staff in his hand. This, said the Lord, is so that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Then the Lord said, put your hand inside your cloak. So Moses put his hand inside the cloak and when he took it out, it was leprous like snow. Now put it back into your cloak, he said. Moses put his hand back into his cloak, and when he took it out, he restored it like the rest of his flesh. Then the Lord said, if you do not believe, or if they do not believe you, or pay attention to the first miraculous sign, they may believe the second. But if they do not believe these two signs, or listen to you, take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground. The water you take from the river will become blood on the ground. And Moses said to the Lord, O Lord, I have never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since you have spoken to your servant. I am slow of speech and tongue. In other words, he's saying, I am unskilled. I cannot do this. And I already told you, I believe it is in the book of Acts. I think it was chapter 7. Moses was one who was eloquent in speech. 
He was mighty indeed. And now after these 40 years, he's saying, I can't do it. I'm slow of speech and of tongue. In other words, the only person he had to speak to out there was not a person at all, but just a bunch of sheep. And he was kind of out of practice. And the Lord said to him, verse 11, who gave man his mouth? Who makes him deaf or mute? Who gives him sight or makes him blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now go, I will help you speak and teach you what to say maybe some of you parents have had children that you've told them to do something several times and they don't want to do it. Here is the fourth objection that he comes to. He goes, well, I can't do it. I don't feel like I'm strong enough. I don't have enough information. And just this whining that is going on. Do your kids whine? Or did they whine when they were small? They want to. And they, come on, you're going to come with me. And you grab them by the arm. And you know what they do when you grab them by the arm? They drop to the ground. And then you get that nursemaid's elbow dislocation. For those of you who are nurses, have you ever seen that? My daughters did that a couple of times. Come on, and they just drop to the ground. And then their arm gets out of joint. And then you've got to take them to the doctor, so they just pop it right back in. You know, but that, if these obstinate little children, if they would just do what they're told, things would be fine. Well, this is what the Lord is doing with Moses. Moses is just saying no, and God's saying go, and he's going no, and he's going go, and he says no. Well, the fifth thing comes up here. Moses said, Lord, please send someone else to do it. Oh, at that point, as a parent, if your child is arguing with you, and they just say no, what are you going to do? You're probably going to discipline them at that point, right? You're going to be so frustrated with them. It's like, what are, you, what are you talking about? Now, a couple of examples of this. When a little child gets to a pool for the first time, you know, you put the water wings on them, you get them in the water, and fathers usually want them to get on the diving board and jump, right? Just come on, right to me. Just, and they get up there, and they're looking over, and... And then they just turn around and they walk away and they, they don't want to do it. You go, come on, you can do it. And they just, they won't. And they just get down and they walk away. And as a father, you're kind of disappointed. And when they do it, you're just thrilled. Well, this is kind of the relationship. It's God and somebody he created. And that person who is created doesn't want to do his will. Again, to review to the objections, I'm insignificant, I am nobody to these Egyptians, I am ignorant, I don't know who you are, I am anxious, I am worried, what if they don't believe me, I am unskilled, I can't speak in this, and I am reluctant. And that reluctance really can be translated into disobedience, defiance, and insubordination. This is where Moses had arrived. Now, if you're listening to God, he speaks to you just as he speaks to me. But you have to take time to listen to him, to see what his will is. And from time to time, he asks me to do things. I just get this sense. That's what he wants me to try. That's what he wants me to reach out and do. And I've gotten to the point where, okay, whatever you want. If it fails, it's on me. If I didn't hear you correctly, it's on me. If it succeeds, you get the glory. That's it. And when you get to heaven, he says, good going. But if you never do it, I already talked about the reward. The reward escapes you. You could have had it, but you just didn't grab forward and reach out and apprehend it. So Moses has slumped into this 
disobedience. Verse 14 says, where God's patience is wearing thin, then the Lord's anger burned against Moses, and he said, what about your brother Aaron the Levite? Now, when God's speaking here, and he's speaking to him as a man speaks face to face, do you think he just folded his arms and said, so what about your brother Aaron? Do you think he did that? I don't think so. Now, you have to imagine two people, because God, I believe, manifested himself in Jesus Christ, a theophany, an Old Testament appearance of God, a Christophany. And so he's standing there talking to Moses. And he's saying, Moses, what about your brother Aaron? No, I don't think it was like that either. What about your brother Aaron? I think it says his anger burned. Now, when God gets angry, what happens? I don't, I don't even want to know what happens when God gets angry. I mean, he could just speak everything out of existence just like he spoke it into existence. And Moses is right there before him and says, No, I don't want to do it. And God says, that's, that's it, mister. He goes, What about your brother Aaron, the Levite? I know he can speak well. He is already on his way to meet you, and his heart will be glad when he sees you. So there's God's omniscience coming into play, saying, okay, kind of knew this was going to happen, but you shall speak to him and put words in his mouth. I will help both of you speak and will teach you what to do. He will speak to the people for you, and it will be as if he were your mouth and as if you were God to him. But take the staff in your hand so you can perform the miraculous signs with it. So God got so angry with Moses, there's no further dialogue. Like, I'm not going to do it. It's like, okay, okay, okay. He just, he's going to do it. He capitulates. Now, now these two words, capitulate and acquiesce. Acquiesce is where you just say, okay, you know. Capitulate is you throw him on the ground, you put his boot on his, his neck, and you go, you will. And Moses is capitulating here. All right, all right, I'll, I'll go do it. It wasn't something where God just convinced him and he acquiesced. He just kind of slid into it. No, he was kind of forced. Imagine God forcing someone to do something. Might he do that with you? Can you think of somebody in the Old Testament that he did that to? Like the guy who had a relationship with a big fish? Remember that? I'm not going there. And he gets on a boat to another direction. He doesn't go to Nineveh. He goes away from Nineveh. And what does God do? He brings up this tidal wave in the ocean and all would be lost. And he tells him, you know, it's me. I'm the one that's causing the storm. If you just throw me overboard, then all your problems will be solved. And God said, right, that's Sure shooting, throw him over, and so a fish swallows him up and then takes him, burps him up on the beach, and he goes and he does what he's supposed to do at that point. God forced him to do his will. Now, would you say that that's a loving God? Well, I would say yes, right from the start, because I know the character of God and I know what the Scripture has to say about him. If God forces us to do something for him, it's for a purpose, People are going to be blessed, and ultimately we will be blessed. But even Jonah, he hardened his heart. Remember when Jonah was sitting there, God called, or caused a plant to grow up and give him shade because it was hot around the area of Nineveh. And he was sitting there, and a worm came up and ate the little plant, and so the plant withered and died. 
And he was just all the more miffed at that. And then he forgave the people in Nineveh because they repented. He goes, I knew you were going to do that. It's just like, well, you are such a sour man. Why are you so upset? God saved all these people and you're not even rejoicing. Well, because you made me come here. You knew that these people would repent, but yet you brought me all. I mean, just complaint after complaint after complaint. And so both Moses and Jonah had to capitulate to God and say, okay, I'm going to do it all right. It's so much easier if you just say, okay, right? You don't have to go through all the grief. I mean, the grief can just compound when God says, this is what you want to do. And you say, no, I'm not going to do it. We can avoid so much heartache and so much peril. And that's what God wants us to avoid. But just like the Jews whom he called a stiff-necked and stubborn people, we are the same way. But I wanted to focus on something here for a moment. Verse 14, Then the Lord's anger burned against Moses. Now I already mentioned that I believe God is omniscient. I believe Jesus is omniscient. I believe the Holy Spirit is omniscient. I'm going to visit something that I've visited in the past when I was in the book of Genesis. Is God, I, it, this makes me ask the question, as I get to a portion of scripture, I, I will see something that will stand out and I'll ask myself questions about it. Is God ever truly angry with us? Does he look at us and go and say, I am mad at you, especially if he knows everything. Does he look at you and say, you messed up and I'm tired of it and now I'm angry. On the one hand, if he is omniscient, is there any reason to be angry? There's absolutely no reason to be angry because you know how it's going to turn out. Yet God is angry here. Well, he knows our frailty. He knows our sin before we commit it. He knows the future. He knew us by name even before the earth was created. Psalm 139 verse 16 says, Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. So he knows every single day, every single act, all that that would transpire But yet now he is angry. He already knows the outcome. Why is it that he's angry? Now, am I the only one that would stop and think about this? I did a search on the internet and this is everywhere. People try to resolve this. How could God be angry if he's omniscient? Now, um, those of some of you know Lionel and Lionel and I, we would sit and talk. We'd meet once a week and we would discuss things, and at one point, uh, we were discussing this fact that, is God disappointed with us? Does he look at us and go, oh man, I'm so disappointed in you. Why, why didn't you just do this or do that if he's omniscient? And at that particular time, I took the position that, no, he's not disappointed. He knows everything. Why would he be disappointed? And I almost slid into this area of, It's for us. He lets us know that he's disappointed so that we would understand what we're really supposed to do. And then I came to the conclusion, that's being disingenuous. 
That is not being truthful. That is doing something that would make me think something other than what was true. And I don't believe that's part of God's character. So how do I resolve this? God is angry. Is God disappointed with us? Well, several times in Scripture, God lamented that he created the human beings, right? So what did he do? Destroyed everybody with the flood. But he was sorry he had made it. Man, I'm so upset I even did this. If God is omniscient, why would he be upset? Well, there's more. When he went into the garden, Genesis chapter 3, verse 9, after they had eaten of the fruit, he's looking for Adam. Adam and Eve knew that he was in the garden. He's calling out for them, and he said, where are you? The end of verse 9. Adam answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Now, if he's omniscient, does he know? <laughs> yes, he does know. Why is he asking the question? Let's go on. He asks another question. Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? There are those who would argue and say, he knew this was just for Adam. You know, and I'm passionate about Scripture. I, I read the Scripture and I take away from it, I try to take away from it just what it says. I don't want to make the error of reading into it. When you read this here, it goes on to say, the man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me the fruit from the tree and I ate it. Then the Lord said to the woman, what is this you have done? It's kind of like God is clueless. Now, again, if you look at Scripture, if you read it on the face, if the first sense makes sense, seek no other sense. That's the first, the golden rule of interpretation. You don't want to look at it and say, obviously there's something else going on here. He knew what he was talking or why he was asking these questions of Adam. He was just doing it for Adam's sake. When you read the text there, is there anything that indicates that? There's nothing. He's having a normal conversation like a normal person. To say that he knew when he's asking the question is eisegeting. Eisegeting is where you take an idea, a thought, a premise, a thesis, and you cram it into Scripture because you don't like how it reads. And it fits better with your personal theology. The Jehovah Witnesses do this, the Mormons do this, and we have to not make that error. We have to take the text on its face value. Let me ask you this one. Is God ever surprised? Does he ever turn like in the little mermaid, the little lobster and say, Zutolo! Yeah, I say, wow, I am just thrilled that this happened. Has this ever taken place? Uh, for instance, in verse 24, God showed up in chapter 4 of Exodus, God showed up to kill Moses. Do you think he has really shown up to kill Moses? When it says he showed up to kill Moses. And what happened? His wife circumcised her son, and we'll read it. And then it says in verse 25 or 26, so the Lord let him go. Okay, because you do this, I'll let you go. But I showed up to kill you. Now, I don't know all the context of everything that's going on there. 
But I do know the plain meaning of the text says he showed up to kill him. And then because of what he did, he walked away. He had intent. Scripture is very clear. He had intent to kill him. But if he was omniscient, why would he even show up to kill him? Just to get him to do what he wanted him to do? And then he changed his mind. Has the Lord ever repented or has he ever changed his mind or has he ever said, well, perhaps I'll do this or perhaps I'll do that. In the book of Jeremiah, when God is talking to Jeremiah, he tells him, I want you to go to the people and I want you to tell them to repent. Otherwise, I'm going to go ahead and ruin them. I'm going to judge them. And then he says, perhaps if they repent, then I won't. It's like he's being indecisive there. And there are all these sections in Scripture where you see that God is acting. And I want to preface this by saying, I believe God's omniscient. But he's acting as if he's not. How do I reconcile this if he's carrying on a conversation like we would, normal human beings, and he doesn't have information, so he's asking for information to fill in the blanks to give him knowledge. Why would he do that if he is omniscient? The the typical refrain is, he decided to divest himself of certain attributes in order to relate to us. Now, wait a second. I have another problem here. Is God God? Has he always been God? Will he always be God? And is he God today? If you divest yourself of God, as God, of one of your attributes, if you say, I'm not going to use that, are you changing who you have always been? Some say no. Some say yes. See, what, what I want to do here, as I'm going through the book of Exodus, I see Jesus just plastered all over the book of Exodus, kind of like plaster on the wall. He is everywhere. He's showing up here, and he's revealing himself. Again, this is a Christophany, I believe, in the Old Testament. So how are we to reconcile these things? For instance, and I've visited this before, is there anything Jesus didn't know when he was here on earth that he said he did not know? Yes, there was, and it was the time of his return. He did not know. The angels did not know. Only the Father in heaven knew. How is that possible if he is omniscient? How is it possible that he is angry, and yet he is omniscient? Why would you be angry? Just to fool the people? To think that they need to do what they should do because you're angry? Or is he actually being relational here, and he doesn't know? Now... If you read the material on this, if you dig into the internet and see what people have written, they are all over the place trying to reconcile this. Now you might ask, why are you even asking about this? Because God was angry. And if he's angry, I want to know why he's angry, especially if he's omniscient. I don't want my relationship interrupted with him. Are there things that he doesn't know about me? Are there things that he is just withholding? Is he relating to me in such a way just to motivate me? In fact, he already knows and he's kind of being deceitful. And that's exactly what it is, by the way. If somebody says he has divested himself of who he is, he is no longer the same as the Father, the same as the Holy Spirit. Some people, and I actually read this, that he got rid of, so to speak, some of his attributes in order to become man. 
And I completely disagree with that. And that was uh, on gotquestions.org. If you go there, you'd like to get your questions answered and people contribute to that. If you get rid of part of who you are, if you place it to the side, there's actually a quote. I wanted to give you the quote. Let me see if I have it here. No, I didn't write it down. But this quote was kind of along the line of God chose not to have part of that glory with him. If that's true, he is going to be less than the father. I don't believe he divested himself of anything becoming a human being. I believe he just added the corporal body to himself. That's what he did. Now, even that, and adding that corporal part, that's a whole section for the corporeal part. That is a section that is open for debate that we can just go on and on and on. I just want to focus on Jesus shows up in the Old Testament here. Who is he? Now, I have a question for you. If you... If you think that he was not fully God or he divested himself or he actually knew what was going on and acted in such a way to relate to the people. If you thought that, let me ask you this question. Was Jesus omnipresent when he was here on earth? Now, you don't have to answer it. In his body... When he was sitting down eating with his disciples, was he everywhere? Now you start to think about that and you go, no. His body was right there. But put on the brakes. Was he still everywhere? If he wasn't, he's not God. So he had to be everywhere even though he was only right there. No, wait, well, my brain is cramping. Hold on a second. How is it that he is everywhere, but he's right in front of me? Oh, isn't that the mystery? How is it he knows everything, but there are some things that, at least one thing in particular, he didn't know. And also there's another thing. The woman who touched him. And Patty and I, we have discussions about this stuff. She goes on, you know, she took one side and I took the other. And we're kind of going back and forth on this. And I'm going, you know... If he said, who touched me? And then his disciples said, what do you mean who touched you? Look at all the people around you. He goes, power went out for me. Somebody touched me. Was he just doing that to deceive the people? Because that's what it would have been if he knew. And he was saying, I didn't know. Actually, it would have been a lie. And if it was a lie, scripture says it's impossible for God to lie. Okay, so we have all these open ends. Like, how do you resolve this kind of stuff? God is angry. Is he going to get angry at me? This is Jesus. I want to find out who Jesus is. We're supposed to know who he is and everything about his character. And this stuff, it'll warp your mind in a pretzel if you try to resolve some of it. Can you resolve the fact that he was omnipresent, yet he was right there? Can you resolve the fact that he was omniscient? And there are some things he didn't know. I believe you can. We'll talk about it later. No, i just kidding. I'm not going to talk about it later. Oh, here's the quote. He gave up some of his rights, is what it said on Got, uh, Got Questions. Did Jesus give up any of his rights to become a human being? If he did, he's not God. God never gets rid of his rights. 
He never gets rid of his attributes. He never gets rid of his character. He simply took on humanity is what he did. Now let's review a little bit. In the Old Testament book of Genesis, he didn't know where Adam was. Here he was angry. If he was omniscient, he wouldn't have had to have gotten angry. He asks questions through the scriptures as if he doesn't know. He gets to the New Testament and he didn't know the day of his return. He didn't know who touched him. Yet if he is God, he is omniscient. And if he is God, he is omnipresent. So how do we put these things together? Os Guinness. uh, Not Os Guinness. I'll think of the other guy in a minute. But I was at a seminar and he answered the question years ago for me. J.I. Packer. It was J.I. Packer. And he said... Jesus is omnipresent through the agency of the Holy Spirit. Jesus is omnipotent through the agency of the Holy Spirit. Jesus is omniscient through the agency of the Holy Spirit. And all of that is at the will of the Father. And he is submissive to that. And it can happen at any time without notice. In one case, as we were just reading, he was angry. But right after that, he knew that Aaron was coming, right? So it displays his omniscience. It proves it right there. And I don't believe it's by accident that he's angry. Aaron's coming. Why was he angry? He's not omniscient. Am am I sinking the stakes in this deep where you see the conundrum that is before us? That God is omniscient, he's omnipotent, he's omnipresent, Jesus is God, he has to be all of those things, even when he's standing right in front of us. And if he asks us a question, I have to assume he really doesn't know the answer, but he knows if I'm answering truthfully or not. God gives him the wisdom on that, and he makes him omniscient. That happens that way. And so to discover who our Lord and Savior is, and all of his characteristics, and and his attributes, we want to have him represented to us completely correct or correctly we don't want to give this type of explanation because people go off and they make all these errors in their interpretation we don't want to commit those errors we want to know christ and him crucified and everything about him we're going to be with him forever i believe god did this so that he could be relational with us and jesus has always been like this hebrews tells us he's the same yesterday today and forever he does not change And so when he was asking questions in the Old Testament, specifically where it begins in the book of Genesis, I believe when Jesus showed up there, again, it's a Christophany, he did not know where Adam was. It's a genuine question. If he's asking the question and it's not true, it's a lie, and it is impossible for God to lie. So you cannot use that argument if you're trying to fashion your theology. You cannot go there. That is being deceptive, and God is not deceptive. And so it is true, I believe, from Scripture that God, the second person of the Trinity, he is like that, and we are created in his image, and we are relational. Now, you have to ask the question, when we get to heaven, it says, we are going to know as we are known. We are going to know everyone around us, and we're not going to have to be told their name. Are we going to be omniscient? We are only going to be like Jesus. We are created in his image. If God wants us to know something at any particular time, he will give us the information. If he wants us to be somewhere at any particular time, he can transport us there at any particular time. But can we be everywhere all at once at the same time? My thought is now, no, we won't be. 
And we're not going to become gods. But as God deals with Jesus, that's how he's going to deal with us. We're just not exactly like Jesus. We are in his humanity, but we are not in his deity. And so to wrap this section up here, I I don't want you to walk away after reading here in the book of Exodus that there are some things that God doesn't know. There are things that Jesus, I believe, it's withheld because it's not the will of the Father. But he's still omniscient. How do we reconcile that? It's difficult. I I don't know how to do that. It's like reconciling how is he omnipresent when he's right there in front of you. These same things must be answered by the agency of the Holy Spirit according to the will of God. And so whether it's with the woman in the issue of blood in Luke chapter 8 verse 45, my goal is to show you there are things that Jesus, in fact, according to Scripture, doesn't know, but that does not make him not omniscient. He is omniscient. I just want to make sure we have a proper view of who Jesus is, that we are not reaching for straws, especially in our representation of him to the world. Because if you go to the world and you say, Jesus is omniscient, and they say, but he was right there with his disciples, explain this one to me. And you're going to, well, he just was. I'm sorry, you're going to lose the argument. And we're supposed to be a representative of who Jesus was. And there is a reasonable answer which is out there. How do you reconcile all the details of that? I have no idea. It's kind of like reconciling, did you choose God or did God choose you? We know the answer to that one, right? The answer is yes. That's how you answer it. And when somebody asks that of you and you say, well, the answer is yes. You're just going to warp their mind a little bit. And that means God is so big, we can't comprehend everything about him. That's what makes God so great. And he revealed this to us. Now, it is difficult to to dive into these subjects, but we want to make sure we're not misrepresenting who Jesus is. Now, going on with this. So far, the application that we should take from these passages where Moses is being disobedient and disagreeable, he told him that he would be with him. God said, I'm going to be with you. It's okay. So we see the provision of God. No matter what the circumstances are around us, no matter how we feel about ourselves, God says... He will provide. He has a name. Uh, God has a name that is his exclusively where he is the one who provides. It's Jehovah Jireh. He is the one who gives us everything that we need. And he is providing Moses to deliver the people. And he is providing the words and the miracles for Moses to do all this before the people. He is completely equipping them. So that's the first thing. We don't want to miss out on the provision of God. The second thing is the disobedience of Moses. We shouldn't complain, we shouldn't resist, we shouldn't refuse God, no matter what the cost. Because God has something in store, not only for us, but for the people that we will touch. And for Moses, the focus was on himself. And that is the error I am quick to make, and I'm sure you are quick to make as well. When it comes to being obedient to God, don't focus on yourself and how difficult it will be if you're obedient focus on God and what he wants you to do if God really is insistent with you he will put his boot on your neck 
like Jonah, like Moses. And when all we have to do is say, okay, whatever you want, God, I am here. Send me. Use me. This is the lesson we're supposed to take away. Don't resist God. Don't say, no, that's it. That's my prayer for you, that you would say, okay, God, I know this is your will. You've been bringing it up left and right, and I'm just going to do it. And it's going to be hard, but I'm just going to do it. Father, we ask for your blessing upon the people who are here. And Father, we pray that you would help us to have this heart of obedience. The direction you set for us is clear. We ask that you would imbue us with your power to make those decisions for our own sakes and for the sake of the people around us. We thank you for the example of Moses and what he did good and what he did not do that was so good. May we be able to cling to the good and forsake the evil. And all for your glory, all for your kingdom. Help us, Lord, to have this view in life so that you may be blessed. In Jesus' name, amen.